How many of you are here tonight for the very first time yet? First time, all right. Melissa, who else? Anybody else? There you go, all right. Well, my name is Reuven, and uh, my wife's name is Janet, and we'll be sharing tonight. Uh, I want to, uh, I'm going to take a step of faith tonight, because three weeks ago, on Pentecost Sunday, I started uh, with Bell's palsy, so this side of my face has been fighting numbness for three weeks, and I've been blowing a shofar for almost 30 years before I ever preach, and uh I couldn't get a toot out of this shofar for three weeks until this morning. I tried it, and I was able to get at least a little toot. But for 30 years, the Lord showed me, blow the trumpet in Zion, blow the shofar, blow the biblical trumpet. So I started 30-some years ago in Haifa, Israel, where we lived for almost three decades, and I've seen how Blowing the shofar, the biblical trumpet, so it's unfortunate how far the church is strayed from its Jewish inheritance, its Jewish roots. But the shofar is so significant that a shofar is going to be blown in heaven when Jesus returns. And there's over 150 references about the biblical trumpet, the shofar. So I want to blow the shofar. One of the significant things about the shofar when it was blown is that it created a space in the unseen realm for God's people to be able to hear more clearly the voice of God from the voice of man. And that's our longing desire, is that we would gather together not to just hear the voice of a man or a woman, but our inner ears would be tuned to heaven's frequency that we could really hear from God. And that's my desire I hope I won't be embarrassed by not getting hardly anything out. But if I was able to blow it this morning, Lord, I ask you give me grace to blow it this evening as well. Lord, I do blow the shofar in Zion, Waco, Texas. And I pray that there would be a sounding of an alarm in our hearts that the day of the Lord is near. And it's a lot nearer than when we first believed. So, Lord, I pray that there'd be a clearance of all kinds of confusion and miscommunication and distraction that's there in the unseen realm that goes through the walls of our mind. I pray that this evening we'd be able to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, Lord, I sound the alarm that our hearts would awaken and be even as that voice in the Song of Solomon, that even though I was sleeping, my heart was awake. And I was listening for the voice of my beloved. Lord, I just want to thank you that I, I know what it's like to blow the shofar, and that was a poor exhibit.
But I thank you, you're a God of grace, and, and you want us to just make a joyful sound. It doesn't need to be professional and distinct and excellent. We're just to make a sound unto the Lord. And Lord, I just blew that to your name. And I pray that you would honor, you would honor, you would honor your word and come and gather and dwell among us. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, my nature, my character, my person, my authority, there I am among you. I pray the ministry of your presence here tonight. Grant that, I pray. Amen. Janet. Janet's going to share the first half and I'll share the second. Don't you like the visual aids we had set up for you tonight? <laughs> Almost feels like you're in a VBS, right? I think it looks beautiful. I wish they could just leave it up. Okay, so turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. So before we jump into the word, we're going to pray over the scriptures together. So if you would put your hand on your Bible and repeat after me. Thank you, Father. For the word of God, I receive it tonight with an open heart and an open spirit. I believe it is that you are who it says you are. And I am who you say I am. Lord, I pray your word would be engrafted into my heart. And that it will change my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting in Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is a messianic prophecy, speaking of the Messiah to come. And in verse 6, it says, Indeed, God says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So let's go through it quickly. He says, it's too small a thing that you be my servant, that you be my Messiah, that you only bring salvation to the Jewish people, my first covenant people. So I will also send you as a light to the Gentiles. Now Gentiles means nations. It's a Hebrew word that is goyim, and it means nations, but it also means the pagan, the pagans, and it means the heathen. And so God was saying, it's not enough that I send you to save my Jewish people and bring them into their the eternal inheritance. I'm going to also send you to all the Gentiles of the earth, and you will be a light to every nation, even to the end 
of the earth. Man, aren't we glad? Because we are Gentiles. Most of us in here are, are Gentiles. We would have been outside the covenants of God, but God extended it. And then let's go to the new covenant, the New Testament in John chapter 8. There's a number of scriptures about uh, Jesus' first coming, over 300. That's just one of them. But Jesus Christ is the light that God sent. He said, I will send you my servant to be a light also to the Gentiles. And that is the Lord Jesus. And Jesus said of himself in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he's making a strong, clear statement. In chapter 12, verse 46, he said, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And now let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. This was part of your homework. You were to have done a lot of Ephesians 5. We're just going to look at verse 8. Paul wrote this to the Ephesian believers. He said in verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So he says to them, your nature has changed. It's not that you had some darkness and now you have some light, but you were and you are. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are new creatures in Jesus Christ. The old has passed away. The old is gone. The old is dead. And now we are living a whole new life. We're a new species. So the old was darkness. The new is light. And we're to walk as children of light. And that brings us to our text today, which is Matthew 5, 14 to 16. I wanted you to see all that because I want you to see that it was prophesied that Jesus would be the light to the world. And then Jesus came and he said, I am the light of the world. And then he says in Matthew 5, 8, you are the light of the world. So he called us what he himself is and what he was. So Matthew 5, 14 through 16, see if you can quote it with me. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, we are the light of the world. So he calls us what he himself is. What was true of him applies to us because we are in him. We find our identity in Jesus. We dare not let the world give us our identity. Then we will all have a low self-image. We need to let the word of God give us our identity. Colossians 1.13 says that he, God, has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So God transferred us. When we were born again, we asked Jesus to come into our hearts, take over the management of our lives, be our Lord. Then we were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus. So let's read about this more in Ephesians 2. Go to Ephesians 2. We're going to 
read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll read a little bit more after that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you who he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others." So these verses describe how we were without Christ. We were dead in our sins. Our spirit was dead. It becomes alive when it ignites with the spirit of God. So we were dead in our sins. We were disobedient. We were lustful. And we were children of wrath. And what that means is that the sons of disobedience, he referred to that term, will come under the condemnation of God's righteous anger. Man, aren't you glad we're not a part of that now? We don't want to come under the judgment of God's righteous anger, but that is the future of the children of wrath. But in verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God made us alive together. He took what was dead. He took what was destined for an eternal separation from God. He breathed life into us. He gave us salvation. He chose us from the foundation of the earth. He has raised us up together with Jesus. He has seated us with him in heavenly places. And then in verse 10 it says, and we are his masterpiece. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has predestined that we walk in. This is who we are. So believing what God says about us does not make it true. It is true, so we believe it. It is true that we are born again of the Spirit of God, that we've been translated out of darkness into the kingdom of his Son, the kingdom of light. It is true that he has purchased us with the blood of Jesus. He has called us to himself. He has seated us in heavenly places with himself. And he is already preparing places for us to live with him forever and ever. It is true. And because it's true, we can afford to believe it. What you do does not determine who you are. Who you are determines what you do. You are light. You are in Christ. So believing God's truth about your identity will empower you to be who he sees you to be. If we believe that we're part saint and part sinner, part light and part darkness, then we will easily yield to temptation and excuse our sin. That's why we need to see ourselves the way God sees us. Matthew 5.16 says that our good work should cause others to glorify God. And according to verse 15, we're not to hide or limit our light. It should give light to all that are in the house. It is not the lampstand that is important. It is the light that is important. We are the lampstand. Jesus is the light. And our good work should bring glory to him and not to us. And so that's our motive for everything we do, right? We want to bring glory to to our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to God the Father. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 
Isaiah 6. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Man, what an amazing experience that Isaiah had. So I wanted to read it first, and now I kind of want to talk it through with you a little bit. So Isaiah saw into heaven. He saw into the heavens of heavens, and he saw the throne of God, and he saw God seated on the throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the entire temple. Can you imagine? He saw the Lord, and then he saw the seraphim flying around. A seraphim, a seraph, seraphim is plural, a seraph is an angelic being that is sort of a fiery, burning, beautiful being. And these are assigned to the throne of God. God created some really neat looking angels. These are a few that people don't usually see on earth, but they are there. And they're crying out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is going on now. If we could see into heaven, we would see the same. God sitting on his throne, the room filled with smoke, the train of his robe filling the temple. And we would hear the seraphim calling out to each other, holy, he's holy, he's holy. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. Man, we get to serve a God like that just amazing. So what was his response? In verse five, Isaiah said, oily in Hebrew, oily. That means woe is me for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah responds by saying, oily, it's a cry of despair. It's a cry of anguish. I am undone. That actually means I am unraveled. I am coming apart at the seams because I have seen the Lord of hosts. And he knew how unclean he was. Immediately he, was, he realized his most unclean part, and that was his tongue, it's often the most unclean part of humans. He was convicted of that, and so he right away said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So he knew he was far from the holiness of God. He was seeing God in his majesty. He was hearing about his holiness, and he knew he was nowhere close to that. Verse 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Isaiah's iniquity was removed when he took the coal from the altar. And touched him with it. So what is iniquity? Iniquity is just not normal sin. It's not transgression. Iniquity is a particular bent 
toward a particular sin. Some people have a bent toward alcoholism. Some people have a bent toward theft. Any sin that you have a particular bent toward, you're susceptible to those sins or those temptations, that is iniquity. And so the Lord didn't just remove from him the sin of speaking unclean words. He removed the iniquity, the bent toward doing that so that it didn't even become a temptation anymore. That bent toward that particular sin was far removed from him. Man, don't you want that in your life? Where he doesn't just forgive you, but he delivers you from that power of that sin. Man, and that is the power of the blood of Jesus. He does not just forgive. He delivers us from the power of sin. So we need encounters with God like that. We need deliverance from our iniquities, our tendencies toward particular sins. Isaiah wasn't only forgiven and healed of a sin pattern, God redeemed his unclean tongue and he allowed Isaiah to speak for him. Isaiah, from this point on, became a prophet that gave the most prophecies of the coming of Jesus than any other prophet in the Old Testament. So God took a man who had a problem with an unclean tongue and he, he, he forgave him, he set him free, and he anointed him to be his mouthpiece. Man, don't you want that testimony? And Isaiah did not just prophesy of the Messiah who was to come. He also is the prophet who spoke the most about the nation of Israel that would be scattered to all other nations because of their sin, their disobedience, their shedding of innocent blood. God scattered them to the nations. You can read that in Ezekiel 36. But then God said, I will bring you back to your land and I will put a clean heart in you, a heart of flesh. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will become mine. Well, God is doing that right now. God is bringing his people back from nations all over the earth. This month, there are over 200 Indian Jews, Jews from India, that are immigrating back to the nation of Israel. Nine million people live in Israel today. Over the last 100 years, Israel's being repopulated. Since it became a nation in 48 is when most of the um, immigration has been taking place. We are seeing the prophecies largely of, age, of Isaiah being fulfilled before our eyes. We are living in prophetic times. God is doing what he said he would do. He said, I'll take you from the nations and I'll bring you back into your land and I will plant you in your land. So that's what's happening right now. But Isaiah was the mouthpiece he used. Isaiah had a redeemed tongue. Okay, let's go on. Let's read verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. So Isaiah heard God speaking to the other two members of the Godhead, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He said, Who will go for us? The us is capitalized. He's speaking to the God. He's not speaking to the angels. He's not speaking to the saints. He's speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah overheard this talk. You know, God didn't say, hey, Isaiah, will you go for me? Will you be my mouthpiece? That's not what happened. Isaiah was in the presence of God. He was seen into the throne room. He was hearing what the angels were saying. He heard the voice of the Lord. And he overheard this question. And his response was, hineni, 
in Hebrew. Hineni, here am I, send me. He didn't say, here I am, you can send me. Hey, I'll be your spokesperson. I can speak. I can speak to people. Let me go. He did. There was no arrogance in him. There was no pride. He just said, Hineni, here am I. I am willing to do anything for you. I'm available. You can send me. Isaiah offered himself as a living sacrifice to God. So I'm going to repeat a little bit here. Isaiah saw the Lord on the throne. He heard the seraphim worshiping him. He heard God's voice. That led him to a confession of sin and then to a surrender to God's service and a change of direction for his life. That's when Isaiah's life totally changed. And from then on, he was God's mouthpiece. Everything changed after Isaiah saw the Lord transcendent, exalted, set high above everything else and everyone else. So what about you? Have you seen the Lord? Have you encountered him in worship or in deep prayer? Have you heard his voice? Have the words of scripture jumped off the page at you where you knew the Holy Spirit was highlighting something to you? Have you been in the presence of God where you overheard conversations in heaven? Because if you have not had a life-changing encounter with the Lord, then I urge you to seek him until you do. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Have you searched for God with all your heart? Or have you just been content to be saved? To know that you're born again, to know that you're going to spend eternity with him. Man, aren't you hungry for more? I am so hungry for more. I want to encounter the Lord much more than I have Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Seek the Lord until you encounter him. And this matches up with Matthew 7, 7. He says, Ask and keep on asking and you'll receive. Seek and keep on seeking and you'll find. Knock and keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. That's what it means. That's what it says in the Greek. Keep on. Keep seeking. Keep pressing in. And then let's look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Paul says, verse 18, chapter 3, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. See, this is part of our destiny, to be changed into the glory of God, to carry his glory. So it's seeing him with an unveiled face. That means an open face, no deception, no pretense, no darkness. We're changed more and more into his image. We reflect what we behold so if we are focusing on evil, we will reflect evil. If we focus on worldly carnal things, we will reflect carnality. 
But if we gaze at the almighty, holy God of Israel in worship, we will become like him. Psalm 17, verse 15, David said, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your, in your likeness. And so the opposite is also true. David would not be satisfied until he awoke with the likeness of God upon him. May that be true of us. Let that be our testimony. As for me, Lord, I'm going to look at your face in righteousness. I'm going to gaze upon you. I'm going to turn away from every other distraction. And I'm going to focus on the King of Kings. And I will be like you. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And until then, God, I'm going to keep looking at you. I'm going to keep gazing at you. I'm going to keep pressing into you. And then last scripture, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, 1 and 2. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And so I want to say to each of you, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord to you tonight. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. There's going to be darkness over the earth. It's going to continue to get darker and darker, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And as was the light of the world while he was here, now we are his hands and feet. We are his body. We are the light of the world now. What a calling. What a privilege and what a responsibility. So let's be faithful to walk in that light. Let's carry the glory of God in a way that brings him honor. Reuben. Wow, I get to share my life with her. Hmm. Last week, we looked at the significance of Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. In the next verse, that Janet read and we all quoted. Jesus calls us from salt of the earth now to light of the world. In the natural, both salt and light are needed for survival. You will die without salt. You will die without light. 
Both provide purification and they both speed up healing processes. I want you all to turn to Genesis chapter 1. This is so powerful. These are the first recorded words ever spoken by God Almighty that are recorded. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. You know, this fact alone, God chose to have his opening statement to all of humanity for all time. This is, this is first in priority. Let there be light. This should speak to us of the significance and importance and priority that God has of light and being light. Now look to the next verse, Genesis 1-4. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided or separated the light from the darkness. So the Hebrew word for divided or separated is yavdel, yavdel, which means light that was separated that was made a distinction of, removed from, taken out of the darkness that was covering the face of the deep, verse 2. So God chose, man, may the Lord just explode this as revelation to our hearts. God chose as his first awesome act, first awesome act of creative power. First to separate light from darkness. And his first words and his first act, they both are very significant and they're relevant to us today. Why? Because this is an eternal truth. God always wants to take light from darkness. Always. God still wants light separated to be removed and taken out of darkness. He called you out of that place. You were darkness. As Janice said, you were, but now you are light. You were, but now you are. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11. In this gospel, Jesus expounds about the significance of light in a very, very special way. I want us just to look at four verses. Verses 33 through 36. Luke 11, 33. Verse, uh, Luke eleven thirty-three. No one, no one, when he has lit a lamp puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. And the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eye 
is bad. Your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Jesus made it so very clear to us. And he made an extremely strong statement here. Now that you are lit up within, don't return to walking in darkness. And don't hide your light. So how do we hide our light? Well, by being quiet when we should speak up. Hmm. By compromising. We hide the light by not sharing our light with others. We hide our light by not confessing when the Spirit is prompting us to make confession. We hide our light when we're not honest before God, who is light, the embodiment of light. Also by ignoring the needs of others, the list is endless of how we can hide the light. Let me encourage you, beware of the sins of compromise. They are many. And do not give the devil an opportunity in your life. Ephesians 4.27, the Spirit of God came upon the Apostle Paul to write this to the church at Ephesus. Do not give a place to the devil. That word place is topos in Greek. It means a spot. Don't give the enemy a little spot. Don't give him a place to attack you. And if the devil has a place of darkness in your life, know this, he's always after more. He's never satisfied. Always. Give him a spot. He'll look to enlarge it. Now turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. I love this passage. The Apostle John in his first letter, right in the very beginning of the first letter, is talking about both darkness and light. He saw the significance of it. Verses 5 through 7, 1 John 1. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. None. Now the none was a Reuven addition. But if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
So what is the Apostle John telling us? He's telling us that only when we walk in the light do we have true fellowship with one another. And fellowship does not mean that we all go out bowling together. That's not fellowship. The word here is koinonia. And it signifies rich times of sharing the things of God together. Koinonia means walking together in the light with other believers. It's the place where we love the truth and we love the light together. That's fellowship from God's perspective. That's koinonia. And that's the kind of fellowship that John the Apostle is encouraging us to love the light, don't walk in darkness, and we will have fellowship. We'll have growth. In John 14, 30, Jesus declared himself that within him there was no darkness at all. No spot. Not a spot. Not a speck of darkness. And that reality that there was no darkness in him made it impossible for the enemy to get a foothold to attack him. That's why God wants us filled with light to dispel every thread, every spot of darkness. Wonderful author and and friend years ago, Francis Frangipan, he wrote this. I, I, it's never left me. There is only one place, one place where the devil has tremendous authority and power. Only one place. And that place is darkness. He has power in darkness. God loves light. The devil loves darkness. They're total opposites of each other. Remember that verse that I read in Luke 11, verse 35. That text is important for us to remember because Jesus gives us strong and clear warning in this verse. He said, Take heed. In other words, be very careful that the light which is in you is not darkness. Darkness loves to hide the light. Just like Adam and Eve. You remember what happened? First thing after they disobeyed God, they hid first fruit of sinning, hide. They hid themselves in the Garden of Eden because the light within them had turned to darkness because of sin. Now let me get personal. Some of you may still be hiding. I say that because I hid for years as a believer. 
I know how easy it is to hide once the darkness of sin takes up a temporary residence in the place in your heart. I know. After I was converted to Jesus, I still had great struggles with sin. I know what it means to have the light within you become darkness. Hey, I was good on the outside. But my eye was bad. And darkness had a place in my heart. I'm so grateful to God. I'm so grateful to God for his saving power to not only forgive, but to deliver us from the power of sin. Sin is powerful. Yes, God is more powerful, but do not underestimate the power of sin. It's powerful. It's powerful. The power of sin has enslaved the entire human race. That's how powerful it is. And it's locked up mankind in a prison of darkness. But I want you to listen to what God is willing to do. God is willing to do for those who still dwell in darkness. And let this breathe hope into you this evening. From Isaiah 42. Don't even turn there. I want you to just listen. I'm going to read three verses. Verse 1, verse 7, and verse 16. This is thus says the Lord to you tonight and to me. Behold, my servant. He's referring to Jesus, his son, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice and judgment to the nations to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I will bring the blind by a way that they did not know. And I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them. And crooked places will be made straight. These things I will do for them. And not forsake them. What an awesome promise from God. I'm so thankful the Lord has been exceedingly merciful toward me. He shined light into the prison cell of my darkness and sin. How did he do it? Three ways that stand out. Lots of time in the scriptures. Lots. I left my job in New York City to move in with my sister in a suburb of Chicago to be their servant for nine months. 
And it was a radical adjustment for me. I went from being a vice president of a company in New York City to a house servant of my sister. But it was good for me. I knew what it was to have people serve me. And the Lord said, now I'm going to learn. I'm going to teach you what it is to be a kingdom servant. Lots of time in the scriptures. In those nine months of living with my sister, I spent between six to eight hours a day in the word. Of course, the rest of the time I was feeding the dog and babysitting and doing the dishes and the laundry. But I had rich time and I didn't care about anything other than the word becoming flesh in me. Lots of time in the scriptures. Number two, lots of time of crying out to God for deliverance. As much as I would confess to God, I'd still sin. Ever been in that place? God, deliver me from evil. That part in the disciples' prayer, I cried out to God for months. Deliver me from this evil. And the third thing was becoming accountable and transparent with other brothers. Those are three powerful elements. A heart crying out to God, the written word of God becoming rhema, and being accountable and transparent to others. Jesus designed that in his body, we all need kingdom relationships where we can live the light together as we all become his disciples. And sometimes there are sins that are in our lives that need more than a confession to God to break the habitual power of sin. We must confess to God to obtain God's forgiveness. But some sinful patterns need more than just confession to him. James 5.16 says, confess your trespasses to one another. Not for forgiveness, Confess your faults to one another that you might be healed. We need both forgiveness and healing to break the stronghold of habitual sin in our lives. And you know what? You've all had habitual sin, all of you. All of us. It takes humility to confess our sins to God. This is why so many people resist God. They're not willing to take the first step of humility to make confession. It takes humility to confess to God, and it takes more humility to confess to others. That's why to break habitual sin, we need a greater grace. Greater humility is often needed to break a greater power that sin has in your life. 
Greater humility is often needed to break a greater power. Greater humility for a greater power to break that. That stronghold of sin in your life. You know, I saw something in this lesson about light that had me experience the fear of the Lord in a greater way. I noticed, I don't know if you did, but I noticed in this passage about Jesus talking about light and darkness that there was no place, no place for partial light or partial darkness. None. It's either or. From God's perspective, it's either light or darkness. There's no gray place of mixture. And this is where the world is headed. And the end time events that are leading up to the return of Jesus, all mixed seed is going to end. The compromise is going to end. You're either going to become white hot for God or you're going to be really dark and cold and will end up betraying and turning to the dark side rather than to the light. All mixed seed will end. We're either all light or we're all dark. And I'm grateful that God has given us still some time while it is still called the day to be living in the light of the day. I want to close with three verses from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, and this is the judgment. Another condemnation has, this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world. But men preferred darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest their works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works or her works have been carried out in God. John 3, 19 through 21. Let's pray. Father, I know how how easy it is to let that spot, that place of darkness to remain. God, I pray, I pray, I pray, almighty God, that there'd be a desperation in our hearts to get rid of all darkness. Lord, there are some, there are, I just sense in the spirit, there are some among us that are still hiding Lord, I pray, I pray we'd hear that 
that eternal question that you called out in the garden, where are you? Where are you? God, you knew where they were, but you wanted them to hear that you were calling out personally. Where are you tonight? Lord, we want to come out of every place where we've been hiding. You said we are the light. We're not just called light. We are to be light. And Lord, I just pray we want to repent before you tonight. We want to ask your forgiveness, Lord. God, it's been so easy to follow the ways of the world, the flesh, and even the enemy by continuing to hide when you say, come to the light. Come to the light. Lord, I pray that you would birth within each of us that the light is our safest place of refuge. It's our safe place when we come and be honest with God. It's the safe place when we can bear our soul and confess even our trespasses with others. God, there are some sinful patterns that not just need your forgiveness, they need healing. Patterns of darkness. To the prophet Isaiah, he had a bad mouth. God, I had a bad eye, a bad mouth, I had bad hands. God, my, my, my whole life just had all kinds of spotty darkness. But I want to thank you that you heard a desperate heart cry. I pray you'd hear heart cries tonight. Lord, would you deliver me from evil? Jesus, you told us to pray that. Deliver me from evil and the ways of the evil one. And Lord, I pray that there'd be a fresh new grace that could come tonight by seeing our surrendered, abandoned, yielded hearts of honesty and light. Tonight we come to the light. Tonight we bring ourselves we drag every element of darkness into the light of God. And Father, I want to pray that even in our times of sharing tonight in our small groups, I pray for the walls of confidentiality to come around each group, that each of our little gatherings could be a safe place, a safe place where we can share our heart and bear our soul, where we can be honest and, and have fellowship in light, in honesty and in truth. Lord, I know that in my life that was a key ingredient and a pathway to victory for me. This is why for 40 years you've said, this is what I have made you for, to be a light among brothers who sit together, who sit together and look to become one with me and one with each other. Behold how good 
and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in one. And I pray for a fresh oneness with God tonight. Lord, we've had things that have separated us from that oneness that Jesus prayed for in John 17. I pray for oneness tonight. Not just with you, I pray for a oneness. Lord, this is only the second week in the second term of looking at your tremendous Sermon on the Mount, but I pray that already there could be openness and transparency to be able to share, to bring it into the light. that there would be no darkness in our lives. So thank you. Thank you for being present when we sit in little groups to become disciples of Jesus and get the inspiration to go and do the same to others. Thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to continue to do in us and through us to the glory of God expressed in Jesus. Amen. Bless you for sitting through two long-winded preachers. That's what happens when you marry a preacher. You both just long-winded. Okay, so if you already know what group you're in, why don't you go ahead and head out with your group? Patty, along with your group is Connie. Connie in the white hat. You belong to Patty over here. So if you can walk out with Patty. And did Bunny ever make it tonight? Okay. Okay. The annex is open. Yeah.